Peter Drucker said, The leaders who work most effectively, it seems to me, never say I. They don't think I. They think we. They think team. They understand their job to be making the team function. They accept the responsibility and don't sidestep. But we gets the credit. There is an identification, very often quite unconscious, with the task and with the group. This is what creates trust, what enables you to get the task done. That's from Peter Drucker in Managing the Nonprofit Organization. This is Hans Finzel. Welcome to the Leadership Answer Man. This is a show for leaders about taking your leadership skills to the next level. Whether you're a seasoned leader or just starting out, I promise to give you practical leadership tips that you can use this week. No matter what your leadership situation is, I can help. Remember, leaders make things happen. My passion is to help you lead more effectively. Welcome to this episode. Today, I'm going to be addressing your leadership pain points, part one. I'm going to cover some of the pain points that you wrote me over the last number of months. I just appreciate so much you sharing with me, and it is so practical, and it is so real. And every one of the pain points that you shared with me, I could relate to, I could understand. I think I've experienced 95% of them. Uh, again, the show notes are at hansfinzel.com. The podcast directory for all my podcasts are at hansfinzel.com slash podcast. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, please write me and let me know. If some of you haven't shared your pain points with me yet, please do so. I recently ran across several people who studied under Peter Drucker. And one of the things that excites me about him is that he wrote most of the books, over two-thirds of the books that he wrote, well over a 100. If you don't know who Peter Drucker was, he just died recently at around age 100. Google him, Peter Drucker. He was like the foremost authority on leadership and management. Uh, he happened to have been German. He taught at Claremont Graduate University. And he wrote two-thirds of all the books he wrote after age 65 which is a great segue into some podcasts that will be coming up soon with my co-author, Dr. Rick Hicks, on the new book, Launcher Encore, which we are launching here. Rick got his Ph.D. studying under Peter Drucker, so I know we'll be talking about Drucker uh, in those interviews with Rick Hicks, which will be coming up very soon. Well, let's segue to some pain points, as I want to address the pain points that you've been sharing with me. Here's the first pain point from a person working in the business world. In my organization, it's fairly difficult to add good new employees or to rid ourselves of poor ones. In many ways, it's a stagnant environment. And as an aspiring leader, it is somewhat daunting to consider managing employees you have little control over. What are some good ways to work with a tired, very mature workforce? And how can I push for healthy change within a very large business? Great question. I happen to know this person. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names of any of you uh, who submitted this, but uh, I happen to know this person is in his late 20s, very gifted. Uh, he is in Southern California. He works for a big, successful company. And when he wrote me this, 
Honestly, I was kind of surprised because if I told you the name of the company, you'd think, that's a big company. They do a lot of stuff and they make a lot of money. And yeah, I guess part of the problem is that they are so big. Sometimes when companies get really, really big and really, really old, and I will say a lot of what they do does service the defense industry, then you can get into this kind of um, morass that he's describing. So I hear your pain. And I actually get this from a lot of millennials who feel frustrated working in a workforce with people older than them and and with boomers still in charge of a lot of things. A millennial is anyone born in basically the 1980s and the 1990s. Uh, My children are all millennials, so I, I get it. So he asks the question, what are some good ways to work with a tired, very mature workforce? Ouch! I think you're talking about boomers. And how can I push for healthy change within a very large business? Let me give you a couple of solutions. And I think all of you listening can probably relate to uh, some of what he's saying, and maybe these solutions will be good for you as well. Number one, always be a great example. You know, I think ultimately we are responsible before God for who we are and how we work. So be a great example. I remember when I was working as a teenager in a company and I had a a manager by the name of Charlie, and Charlie's approach, he wasn't the big boss. He was just my manager. His approach was, Hans, here's the deal. Whenever Fred, the boss, is around, we work very hard. We work our butts off. But when he's not around, we basically goof off, play cards. (laughs) That's how he was teaching me to work. Well, I didn't buy it, and I didn't follow his example. My parents taught me to work hard and have a work ethic, and I thought it was dishonest to be paid to work and to not work. So number one, always be a great example. By the way, I did annoy uh, this guy because I wouldn't goof off when the boss wasn't around, so he didn't like me very much. But I learned a valuable lesson. We shouldn't always lead as we were led. So number one, always be a great example. Number two, always stay positive at work. It's so easy in a situation like this to go septic, to go um, negative, to go pessimistic, to become a sour employee. Don't do that. Stay positive. Always stay positive at work. And you will be, all the things I'm sharing with you, I think eventually you will be rewarded and you will rise in leadership. Because people who get promoted are usually positive people. Because people in leadership know you hire for attitude, you train for skills. So keep that positive attitude. Number three, be faithful in little things. You know, I believe this is a biblical principle. He who is faithful in little things, I will put in charge of big things. And I think God will honor your faithfulness if you do a good job with the job you've been given. Number four, grumble to people outside. Sure, you need to gripe about your job. Just as you shared with me some of the frustrations you're having, you need to find people outside your work. You need to find people outside your work that you can grumble to. And don't dump everything on your spouse. This is where great friends really come in. Somebody you can gripe about your job too, but don't grumble inside. Number five, ask for and apply for promotions. Look for them whenever they come up. Apply for them. Ask your boss, hey, I want to stay here. I'm committed. 
what's a good career track for me. So keep your eye out for those promotions that'll take you up the food chain. Number six, push for change, even if you're on the bottom looking up. You know, I was the president and CEO of our nonprofit ministry organization, Worldwide Global Impact, for 20 years. And I was surprised at some of the things I could not change from the top. Many, many things can be changed better from the bottom up than from the top down. And uh, if you're in a good working environment, just push for change no matter where you are. But don't push uh, obnoxiously. Push graciously with humility, but with firmness. And, you know, they're going to buy some of your ideas and some of your ideas they're not going to buy. You don't want to become the kind of person that's always known as a complainer. So push for change with a big smile on your face and a big positive attitude. And finally, number seven, perhaps transfer to a more healthy part of the organization where there are people like you. I find that in a lot of these massive big companies, there are other places where there's greater health and greater fun in the workplace, so you might consider that. Thanks for that pain point. Okay, the next pain point I want to share with you. This has to do with working with volunteers. And this came to me from two different people, but it's the same topic, and it's working with volunteers. If you're in a church, then you really know about this problem. A lot of the work of a local church takes place through the people of the church who volunteer, whether it's teaching Sunday school or parking cars on the parking lot or counting the donations in the collection plate. There's a whole lot of work that gets done by a workforce of volunteers. Here's what I heard from one of you. The lack of commitment from those I'm leading in the church, that's my pain point. Having individuals who say they'll be there and then call at the last minute and say they can't make it for whatever reason. Wow, that's frustrating. And here's somebody else that wrote something very similar. Another one of you. Currently, my biggest pain point as a leader, and while attempting to lead through others, has been lack of commitment and lack of capacity. When the skills, motivation, initiative, and ability to connect tasks to the big picture are not there, the organization stumbles. Lots of people say they want to help, but they don't dig in in a manner that allows them the time to fully understand the role and set plans to meet the expectations of the role. I'm actually leaving two volunteer organizations because of issues arising from these two points. Again, it's a frustration about people who are volunteers not really delivering. Either it's a problem of lack of commitment or it's a problem of um, lack of expertise and ability. You know, the church relies on volunteers. Many ministries rely on volunteers. I was just down at the Word of Life uh, campus in, near Tampa, Florida. It's a really cool uh, Bible school down there in Tampa, and it's it's got about 300 students, and they have a big RV park. And in this RV park, they have an army of seniors who live there during, you know, they're all from the cold winter climates, and they go down there and spend the winter in the warm Florida sunshine and warm weather, and they volunteer. I tell you, it was so cool as I ate in the dining hall and wherever I went, whether it was yard work, the grounds, the dining hall, cleaning the buildings. It was an army of volunteers. And I thought, 
you know, they couldn't pull this off. They couldn't hire and pay for all these people. Ministries and churches really rely on volunteers. So how do we work with volunteers and get them to be faithful and to get them to uh, fulfill their commitments and show up when they say they're going to show up? You know, I wish I had a silver bullet (laughs) and a magic potion, but just let me give you some of my suggestions. First, I want to give you two books that I think are great books. One is by Bill Hybels. It's called The Volunteer Revolution, Unleashing the Power of Everybody by Bill Hybels. And he is a pastor of a very big church, Willow Creek Church in Illinois, and they have an army of volunteers. And they've learned a lot about how to use volunteers and how to address these issues. Another great book is by Sonny Fader, S-O-N-N-Y-F-A-D-E-R. And this will all be on my show notes. 365 Ideas for Recruiting, Retaining, Motivating, and Rewarding Your Volunteers, a Complete Guide for Nonprofit Organizations. And that's a Kindle book, so it doesn't cost too much money. So that's a couple books as resources that I would recommend to you. Okay, another point I would say is that less is more. The 80-20 rule really applies when it comes to volunteers. You need less volunteers that'll do a better job. You know, count on the few that you can really count on. It would be nice if we could have a lot, but usually less is more. And the 80-20 rule really does apply. 20% of the volunteers will do 80% of the work. And 80% of the volunteers will not be as reliable as that core 20%. So you need to focus on the 20% and help them, those who are faithful, to recruit other people like them. Next point. Yes, it can be very frustrating to have people flake out on you since you don't pay them. I would gather the volunteers together and talk about this problem. If you really have a problem with this, I would pull them together and I would head it straight on and talk to them about it and say, you know, how can we address this deep problem? Because we have, you know, Houston, we have a problem here. And they might be able to shed some great light on how they're not being treated right, they're not being treated well, they're not being rewarded in ways you might not even realize you can reward them. You have to get to the deep down in their hearts and find out what motivates them to want to volunteer. And finally, you have to lead volunteers with vision and values. It's really what motivates people. They're not motivated by a paycheck because you're not paying them. So what does motivate them? You have to give them a connection to the big picture, to the big vision, to the big values. Right now in America, there's a big movie out, Selma, and it's about Martin Luther King. And I grew up in Alabama. I remember that story and that march in those days. And I also just got back from Washington, D.C., and there's a beautiful new Martin Luther King Memorial as part of uh, all the big memorials in our nation's capital. And I thought, what was it about this man that inspired so many volunteers to to march, to, to demonstrate, to die? And, uh, you know, Martin Luther King as an aside, said there's two things you have to get over if you really want to change the world. Number one, you've got to get over a love of money. And the second thing, you've got to get over a fear of death. If you can get over your love for money and a fear of death, you can change the world. 
Why did he change the world? Why did he get so many people to follow him? Well, he said, I have a plan. Is that what he said in Washington? No, he didn't say, I have a plan. I have an idea. I have a program. I have a concept. I have a book. He said, I have a dream. And that dream was the vision and the values that he cast. And he led an army of volunteers to change our country. So those are some thoughts on volunteers. They are wonderful if you can learn how to work with them well. You're listening to Hans Finzel talking about your pain points. I just want to remind you that I love to hear your pain points. Please write me at HansFenzel.com. Go to the contact tab and and let me know uh, not only your pain points that you're struggling with in your work, whether you're a follower or a leader or middle management. Let me know uh, your success stories. If you have any questions for me, I'd love love to get it. Also, if you want to sign up for my email list, I'd love to have you on the list. I send out periodic updates. I don't spam anybody, and I just love to give you my updates when new podcasts are coming out or other things. If you go to HansFinzel.com, you can get the first chapter of my new book, The Power of Passion and Leadership, for free by signing up for uh, my newsletter. Also, I want to let you know that that new book that I came out with that you know about, The Power of Passion and Leadership, is now also available as an audiobook on audible.com or amazon.com and you can listen to it within uh, just a little over an hour okay let's get back to the pain points from a ceo in ministry a current pain point that i feel is when i see my executive team worn out from working long hours on stuff that all seems critically important and feeling i feel powerless and stumped as to how to reduce their workload without compromising the pursuit of the mission that we've agreed on. Boy, I can really relate to this. Having been a CEO of a nonprofit for all the years that I led our ministry, and it seems like we could never pay people enough, and we could never have enough people. It's a common problem in ministries and churches. Too much work and not enough money to hire enough people to do the work. And so this CEO is looking at his troops, and they're worn out. They are uh, working more hours than they should. They're stressed out. They're worn out. They all agreed to do the work. And I find people in churches and ministry are some of the hardest working people on planet Earth, devoted to the task, devoted to the cause. And and they're they're a great example of people working for a cause bigger than just uh, money or the bottom line. So Here's my input, just uh, seven ideas that I, that I came up with that I thought might be of help. Number one, reward people with non-monetary things, time off, fun events, etc. You know, the younger generation, the millennials, people born in the 1980s and 1990s like my kids, they loved additional days off. And, and maybe you can figure out and even ask them, you know, we don't have the money to pay you more to give you a big raise, and we don't have enough money to hire more people to add to your department, but what could we give you to help reward you for um, your work in non-monetary ways? Perhaps it's an extra day of vacation. Perhaps it's some kind of a office event 
I'm not sure, but but ask people what they would like. Uh, ask your team and the people what they would like. Number uh, that was number two. Number three, recognize uh, that all the work won't get done. Find the critical path. You know that's really important. I can tell you how many times I just left the piles at my office and went home to my family because I decided you know they're more important than this work. And I, and I guess I realized. The work's not all going to get done, so I'm just going to have to walk away from it. And as the leader, you should, I'll get to that a little bit more in the middle, but you've but you got to look for the critical path. And this leads me to number four, do a workload task assessment. You see, many people do things because they were done by the people before them. And a lot of companies, they know this, they, they'll do a task assessment, a job assessment, all the duties or all the activities. I did this with the, some of my direct reports, some of the ladies that worked in my president's office. And I, I remember how many times they would get overwhelmed and my assistant would come to me and said, Hans, I think we need to hire another person. We just can't get it all done. I said, well, let's talk about it. You know, let's take a half a day and get in the conference room and let's, I, I just want to hear from you. Make a, all the activities you're doing, and let's assess which of them we can cut out. And we did. You know, we found all the activity was good stuff, but I found some of it was not absolutely critical to the task. And also I find that in churches and ministries, we keep adding more good stuff. Every time somebody has another good idea about what we ought to do, we add it on, we tack it on. And Pretty soon you're overwhelmed with too much stuff, too many programs, too many initiatives. And what we would do in that case, we'd say, all right, let's cut this. And, you know, how much do I have to cut? Do we have to cut in order where you can, you know, sanely be able to work here and not get burned out? So assess the tasks of the people. Are they doing the right stuff? Number five, hold your team accountable to take their days off and their vacations. You know, if you've listened to me long enough, you know that I'm a big believer and you need to have a life. So hold your team accountable. I always did this with my leadership team and everybody who reported to me. I wanted to know their vacation plans for the year. I wanted to know, and I was watching, uh, are they taking their time off? Are they taking their days off? Because, you know, I did some research on this, and, and Americans are not good at taking time off. And many times Americans, I mention Americans because in all the world, we're the worst vacation takers. And in America, we, we don't often take all the days that are allotted to us. And we say, well, I don't have time to leave the office, or, or I don't have the money. That's the other excuse I hear from people. But uh, we need to learn, and you need to hold your team accountable to take their days off and to take their vacations and to ask them, what are you going to do? Number six, you need to set the example. If you work all weekend, they're going to work all weekend. If you take work home every night, they're going to take work home every night. So you, if you're the leader, you need to set the example. Okay, now I know what some of you are thinking. I'm not the leader, but I work for a workaholic. And actually, I have addressed that question in the past on this podcast. You know, that, that's a tough one. I hear you. I know some of you work for workaholics, and you, and you don't take all your stuff home. And uh, sometimes your boss is not happy with you because you don't seem to be working as many hours 
as they're working. But that goes back to who are you ultimately accountable to. And that's my final point, number seven. The marriages, families, and good mental health come before the mission. You know, this person that wrote me said, uh, we don't want to compromise the pursuit of the mission that we've all agreed on. Well, let me just tell you, I believe your marriages, your families, and your good mental health come before the mission. So that's how I would address that. Okay, I want to hit one more pain point in this podcast, and this was betrayal on the leadership team. Here is one that became a literal pain point, and I want to read you what this listener wrote to me, and I've experienced this uh, myself, and uh, this is betrayal and how painful it can be. He said, I had an Absalom on my team. And if you know the Bible in the Old Testament, that was somebody who betrayed somebody else that was very important. My key guy, whom I recruited to my leadership team, staged an unsuccessful coup. Behind my back, he attempted to quietly convince the rest of the team that he would be a better leader than me. It almost worked. To help solve the problem, I asked trusted outsiders from HR to come in and observe the team dynamic. They concluded it was the most significant case of spiritual warfare they had ever observed, and he was at the center of it. This is a very large Christian ministry that I I know very well. So when I terminated his role on the team, everything cleared up, and the team asked me to never allow him back on the team. After two years of counseling, he returned. Apparently, he had stayed in the organization but had gone off the leadership team. So uh, he was dismissed by the person who wrote me this letter from being on the leadership team, but he stayed within the organization, which is often the case, especially with missionary organizations where people are on support and they kind of move laterally everywhere. So that was the case here. After two years of counseling, he returned and confessed that he had a significant issue with authority stemming from his father issues. Unfortunately, I was in the wrong position at the wrong time and received the brunt of his anger. He subsequently lost another position within the organization, is now separated from his wife, and is taking steps toward divorce. The pain was nearly unbearable at the time and resulted in a minor heart attack for me. Talk about pain. Well, thanks for sharing that with me. That, 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 oh man, that sounds very painful. I just want to give you a little bit of input. I've been there. I have experienced being betrayed and being uh, sabotaged behind my back. I get the pain of betrayal very much. Uh, Just a couple of tips. Again, seven things I wanted to say about this particular uh, pain point. Number one, I I highly recommend chapter four of my book, The Top Ten Leadership Commandments, about Moses. And that chapter is the favorite chapter of people. (laughs) Thou shalt be opposed, resisted, and misunderstood. It's part of leadership. It happens routinely. And I love how Moses uh, responded to opposition and betrayal. At one time or another, 
in his career of 40 years of leading the children of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land, he was betrayed by everybody, the followers and his leadership team. So read that chapter 4 of the Top 10 Leadership Commandments. Thou shalt be opposed, resisted, and misunderstood, and learn from how Moses responded. Number two, you did the right thing to fire him. Uh, I know people in, in that kind of situation who don't fire those people. That was the right thing to do. Can you imagine if you didn't? Well, I know. We all know what would happen. It would just fester like a terrible cancer and bring the entire work to a screeching halt. So you did the right thing to care enough to confront and deal with it. Number three, you were right to pull in the HR people. That's exactly what they're there for, to protect you and to protect the team. And if you don't have an HR department, <laughs> you should have one because they are the experts of this. Number four, uh, Donna and I have learned this principle through the years, hurting people hurt people. I think it's cool that this person came back to you, and I think they kind of asked forgiveness and said they were they now know why they were doing what they were doing because they were hurting so much themselves. Hurting people hurt people, and you got to be careful, and you got to guard yourself against allowing hurting people uh, to take up too much time and energy on your leadership team. I've been mentoring a a leader here in Colorado, and he had a person like this on his leadership team. It was a woman, and she just had a lot of wounding, and, and I just kept gently telling my friend, you know, she is, boy, taking up way too much energy and emotion and draining your team. And, and eventually, uh, she decided to leave on her own. And it was amazing to see the change on the team when that person left. You know, we have to love them. We have to give them grace. We need to work with them. But on a critical leadership team, I don't think you can allow a hurting person just to suck all the energy out of your team. Hurting people hurt people. Number five, you sound like you might need some counseling yourself. And if you've been through this kind of a painful situation, you just might need to see a counselor yourself. Number six, have a trusted friend outside the organization that you can dump on. If you're in situations like this, oh, you need friends outside of your spouse to dump on. And finally, Moses, number seven. He had a great response whenever he was opposed. Here's what he did. Every time, read it yourself at the book of Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses had a great response every time he was opposed. He fell on his face before God, and he cried out to God and asked for wisdom to respond properly. How do we respond in our own flesh to opposition? Well, I know exactly how we respond. We get defensive, we get angry, and we often respond in our flesh and selfishly, and we're looking out for our own reputation. And I love how Moses just got on his face in humility and basically prayed, God, give me the words to say and how to deal with this opposition. Hey, thanks so much for sharing these pain points. Uh, I've kind of run out of time here and I have a bunch more, so I'm going to take another show and continue to talk about leadership pain points and just some of my advice and direction to those of you who are in the middle of this pain. Thanks so much. 
This has been Hans Finzel. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Answer Man. Remember that leaders make great things happen. We can always take our leadership to the next level. What are your leadership questions that I can answer for you on a future podcast? Please write me at hansfinzel.com and check out my leadership resources and sign up for my free email updates. I hope you keep listening and learning and that you go out there this week and make a difference with your leadership. 